Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Anthro to UX. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Kathy Kittner, a staff UX researcher at Google, previously at Intel, so a lot of great experience in the tech sector. So, Kathy, would you start by just telling everybody a little bit about how you got interested in anthropology? I was an undergraduate and at Kent State University many, many moons ago, and I uh, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to, to study. I was kind of all over the place. And back then, you didn't have to pick your major right away, like many schools make you do. So I kind of dabbled around here and there and took history classes. I went to Mexico and did a study abroad program. I really loved the things that I was learning there. I started studying Spanish. And then one summer I took and uh, what was it? It was this um, psychological anthropology class. Um, so it was cross-cultural looking at the psychology of different cultures. And it was taught by um, a professor of archaeology. Um, but back then it was the four-field approach in a true sense. And his name was Olaf Prufer. He's since passed away. He had an extremely interesting story, which if people are interested, they can they can look it up. Um, and I went and did a field school after that, uh, an archaeology field field school. And I just, I told him, I said, I think this is what I'm interested in. And so the next day when I came to class, he had brought a big cardboard box full of ethnographies and said, if you're interested, read this and then talk to me again. And I just fell into this world of, of ethnographic monographs from all over the place, the classic ones. And, and I was stuck and hooked. And so I've never stopped from <laughs> from the time I guess I was like 19 or 20 um being fascinated with with anthropology it just it spoke to me in a certain way and continues to speak to me now um as I do with everybody I'm curious to know you know how you end up in in the world of practicing uh it doesn't have to be you know I'm not saying UX particularly but like you know how did you make your way to to thinking about working in business there's a a whole, it feels like I've had at least three, maybe four careers in, in anthropology, each one slightly different. Um, and maybe it's because I get kind of bored after a while and I say, what else is out there? Um, I started off, I got my, I never really wanted to teach. Um, that My father was a professor, my brother became a professor, and for some reason it just didn't, I wanted to be out there using anthropology in the world to better understand the problems at hand, um, whether it was, you know, classic pop, like intersectional problems of poverty and gender, et cetera. Although we didn't talk about it like that back then. Um, and so I wanted to do something with it. And I, we didn't call it applied anthropology or practice or anything. I just didn't want to just sit around and teach kids about anthropology. I wanted to do anthropology. And so my first job when I got my PhD was working at the University of Miami um, as a street ethnographer. So I was on, 
I was on this large NIH project that was concerned with trying to understand how people transition to injecting heroin and from snorting heroin, and then what kind of interventions could be thought of or discovered um, that would prevent the transmission of HIV with injecting drug users that share needles. And so I would go out in my little Nissan Sentra and search for heroin addicts on the street and bring them into the labs and we would do testing for HIV. We, I would do a complete interview with them about practices. We'd give them a little kit to take with them with bleach so they could clean their needles. But we also went much more holistically into the whole culture of, of drug use in Miami. Um, I particularly hung out in the, the Puerto Rican neighborhoods and somewhat in Overtown as well. I hung out in crack houses, like the deep hanging out. I worked um, interviewing drug dealers, watching them deal drugs. Um, I didn't run from the police. I got shot at a few times and this and that. So that was my like first introduction. And I did that for about three years um, until I it became too much. Like, And I was pregnant with my second child. And so I moved back into fisheries, um, working for NOAA. Um, or a division under note. So it's called, it was called the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council, um, a federal that, that manages fisheries around the country um, in different zones, 200 miles off the coast. And they needed, um, because of mandates that they had in the federal regulations, they had to take into account the social and economic impacts on fishing communities when they put into effect new regulations. So, I was one of the first anthropologists to work in that field. Um, and that that kept me busy for quite a few years, I, probably like 10 years or so, until I felt um, like I didn't have any power to make any change <clears throat> for the better anymore. Um, there was too many external forces, gentrification going on, um, climate change that was beginning to really make a difference for, for fishing communities. And that's when I started looking at tech um, because I was mentoring students at that time. And some student came to me and said, I want to go work at Intel Corporation. And I was like, what? They don't hire anthropologists. And and then I did some investigation and I talked to Ed Lebo, who I had met previously, who's now the president of the AAA and um, or the executive director, not the president. And he said, oh, yeah, I know some people out there. Why don't you get in touch with them? And so I did, and it turned out they had some job openings, and they were fascinating to me. It was all about learning about the impacts of, of computers um, on populations around the world. So, you know, I haven't planned, I, have, I have to go back and really start thinking, but we, um, so I, I went and I applied for a job. Um, the student that was uh, interested in moving out there got an internship. She didn't have her PhD yet. And, uh, and that started the whole thing. That was in 2000, end of 2005, beginning of 2006. So just uh, real quick, out of curiosity, you said you noticed the impact of climate change back when you were involved in fisheries. So, of course, you know, people in the sciences have been talking about it for quite a long time, you know, decades, right? Um, but just out of curiosity, when was that and what were you seeing that was so obvious at that point? There was um, a new push in, with a lot of the fishery biologists um, to do ecosystem research on the fisheries, knowing that 
uh, they couldn't take this narrow view of just how many fish were being pulled out of the water by fishermen, whether they're recreational or commercial, and that there were other changes that were occurring. So I'm not a biologist, nor am I a marine biologist, but one of the things that most um, struck me at the time was in interviewing and talking to fishermen, as I that was a big part of my job, as they were telling me that uh, the water temperatures were changing. And they had no, they keep meticulous logs of their fishing when they go out and they take water temperature readings, etc. And they were noticing that fish that normally would only be found, let's say, off the coast of Florida were now turning up off the coast of North Carolina because it was cooler waters. And so they were assuming that waters were getting warmer um, and that it was changing the upwelling um, of a lot of the Gulf Stream that runs along it. And so it was bringing different organisms into the water and shifting everything. Um, that was kind of discounted for a long time by the, the regulators and the environmentalists as being, we, they weren't really talking about citizen science back then. It's just starting to bubble up. They now have implemented programs where they have brought in the fishermen to, um, to do citizen science and to be able to have a uh, more of a say in the way the science is, is conducted, um, the way data is gathered, and to have a, a bigger voice. They're, fishermen for a long time had no voice. Um, they were poo-pooed and, and said, ah, you're uneducated and, and this and that. And so um, that thankfully has changed. But it was mostly in the, the changing um, water temperatures and then the impact on the migration of the fish. Sad that the fishermen had all the data for... Right, and weren't listened to. It's often the case. It was one of the reasons I actually left. Um, I wrote an article in a anthropology and business um, on on ethics, and I bring up the conflict that I had um, with, between the fishery managers and the environmentalists, and then the fishermen, and how it, it wasn't getting resolved. And <clears throat> that was it was an ethical question for me, and so I had to decide, do I want to continue um, in this role or do I want to, and then Intel popped up luckily at the same time. So, so it kind of took the pain out of, of leaving. So Intel pops up and you said it was around 2005. So uh, PC still sort of dominant, you know, for mo for many people still across the U S you know, just getting on kind of high speed and in bigger numbers um, you know, pre most mobile, most capable mobile devices. Were they thinking about like mobile at that time or were they, you know, just purely sort of invested in the desktop? Um, it depended on, on who you talked to at, at Intel. So in the labs where I was, there was, you know, a push. There was, well, there was the Blackberry, which was very popular, but there was talk then um, about the future was going to be mobile. Um, Ken Anderson did a lot of work in this and Don Napis um, at that time were doing really interesting things in Estonia and Russia along the Chinese border and things like that. But there was someone that was always walking around saying, one day you're going to have in your pocket the power of, you know, three PCs that you have now. And everybody go, eh, nah. You know, what would we do with all that power in our pocket? And and so really lacking that, even myself, that vision of what you could do with what we now call a smartphone. Um, 
And then along came the iPhone. Um, and again, you know, me being the slightly Luddite kind of person that, that I can be, was like, hey, what do you need that for? You know, I'll stick with my BlackBerry. But then it, it became more and more interesting um, as, as phones developed. Now, Intel missed that whole, and this is now common knowledge, um, they missed the boat on being the chip provider for the, the first iPhone. And that kind of set them down a path that, that they couldn't recover from as the world did this leapfrogging and jumped into mobile computing smartphones. Um, Intel was <clears throat> kind of left. They tried at one point to um, create a mobile phone, um, particularly for the Kenyan market. And it was a, a demo that they did. And we did some research around that. What, what would that look like? How would people react to having a smartphone that have never used a smartphone before, maybe never have used a computer? How would they adapt to that? Um, and so they were kind of left with tablets and and desktops and laptops to, to work around. And they kind of like did it as I was leaving, they were doing much more of a turn towards servers and, and large, you know, big data computing and things like that. So, but it was a, there for a while, there was a big push to get into mobile um, smartphones and, and this and that. And then they just couldn't catch up with like Qualcomm and Apple and Samsung and, and all the big players that we now know today. And so while there, you were in a lab. Now, um, I have a few questions about that. So, I mean, first off, at that time, you, you know, was anybody referring to the work you were doing as UX or, were, you know, was it just still sort of, you know, principal research and a, the like? At first, it was not. So we were, I was in a group to start off with. It was called People and Practices Research, um, PAPR, and, or some people called it paper, but it, we always just said PAPR. Um, and if anyone listens to this and worked with me there, they'll, they'll be taken back to those times. So we weren't talking about UX research um, at that time. We were talking about kind of socio-technical research, um, anthropological research, social science research and technology. The term UX came up I think in like 2010, 2011, was, there was a reorg. We were in the labs, then we stayed in the labs, but then we were kind of sucked into this larger organization that Genevieve Bell was leading at the time. And I think we were called IXR, Interactions Experience Research. We had various names that came out and that's where the experience part started coming up. Um, I can't remember if we were ever UX research. Um, that didn't seem to fly so well because that was kind of outside of what we thought we were, I think. I think that's where one of the, the kind of divisions came up with UXR was very tactical um, and socio-technical research and technology was, was much more aligned with deep thinking, big ideas, academic kind of questions. And so that's kind of where I'm going in the sense that not many people today have the experience of working in a lab within a large organization that is very rigorous and very academic and very strategic and very long-term thinking, 
Um, you know, it, it does seem like, I mean, I appreciate some of that goes on at Google, some of that goes on at the metas, you know, those, those organizations of the world, I, you know, I get that that exists, but it does seem like in most organizations, it is, it tends towards the more usability, more towards the tactical, if you will. So could you just maybe share, you know, what it was like to have that experience, you know, being in a lab? It was, you know, I look back on it. Um, with great fondness, I guess, um, having been removed with, from it for about five years. And it was a place where you could, where we would sit down and have these long, rambling kind of conversations. People would bring in an academic that was taking, you know, photographs of this and, this and the next thing. And then, you know, because we had people from the humanities in there and people that were had PhDs in psychology and anthropology, etc. It was a very kind of wide ranging discussions that we had. And then we would kind of like bring those discussions down a bit more towards the ground and say, how could this apply to what Intel is going to be doing in the future? And so a lot of the thinking in the projects that we did were not necessarily to have impact specifically on that chip that was being developed, but to try to imagine out one to five years where people that would companies that would be buying Intel's products, how could they possibly apply these these new capabilities um, to certain problems in the world? And then there was also a lot of thinking about, you know, what are the coming trends? Where is the world going? Is it becoming, you know, more mobile? That was one thing. Um, I remember Ken Anderson talking about snacking, you know, is people snacking on the internet, they go and kind of take a little bite here and a little bite there and and this and that. And I think he wrote an article on um, So there was one project that I worked on was looking at women um, in India, particularly rural women in India, and how they were using just feature phones, regular feature phones, and how, how had that changed their lives, if at all, and, and what were the challenges that might be understood around that kind of significant change. And so that we, I doubled up with um, Joe Taki from, at that time she was at uh, RMIT, or maybe she was at Queensland University of Technology. So there was a lot of um, collaborations with academics. And so they had the ability to do the longer term research. We had some of the ability to fund the research. And then we would go with them to the field and do research with them and, and bring those findings back and try to, you know, socialize them around the company in order to maybe change, to either enlighten people about what would, might be happening. Perhaps it's a new market opportunity um, for something at Intel, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know. So it was, it was just a lot of, uh, you know, writing publications, getting published, going to conferences, et cetera. Um, it, it was not every day you're in a lab um, asking people, okay, what would you do next? Okay, so now you've clicked on the blue button and where do you think you'll go? So, Having had the experience of where you came from and seeing how this practice has developed, especially in a fast-paced kind of agile environment, which also was not the norm then, you know, what, what reflections do you have on the changes that you've witnessed in the way we're sort of generally being employed to do research in tech companies? That's an interesting question. I think 
that anthropologists in a way are underutilized in a lot of the roles that um, they're hired into. And I say that because um, because of that fast pace tends to make, I can't tell you how many times people have said when I'm doing an interview, just get to the part where they, you know, they go through the screens and we want to get their, their opinions. Where my practice is usually to build rapport with whoever I'm talking to first, find out where they're from, you know, what are the things that are important to them in terms of whatever the topic of the interview might be. Um, and really try to understand them and situate them in time and space and culture and belief systems, and then get to the testing, the usability testing. Um, there's a lot of impatience for that first part until you can educate the people that you'll get a better understanding of whatever it is that you're trying to test, that people don't come in a vacuum, you know, a vacuum pack, and they're just going to be clicking buttons, that there's a whole world around them and behind them that we should better understand. You, obviously, you can't understand everything and you have to start sizing out the patterns that are there and things like that. But is it, you know, is it a question of the life stage that they're at? Is it uh, a question of gender? Is it education? Is it a marginalized or underrepresented population that you're talking to? Um, all of those things are important to do good work. And I think a lot of times anthropologists are well-poised and well-trained to, to pose those questions, but they're being underutilized in that sense. Whereas in the past, I think um, that was more of a possibility. You could bring in those kind of big questions. But right now, sometimes it's like, just, you know, cut to the quick and cut to the chase and let's go. You said it was more of a possibility. Was it only a possibility or was it also an expectation in the past that you would do those things? I think it was kind of both. <laughs> I think of, um, I'm going to drop the name, Richard Beckwith, who I worked with, who was a psychologist I worked with it, and he's still at Intel, um, if I'm not mistaken. And I used to call him the Renaissance man, because even though he wasn't an anthropologist, he had like knowledge of almost everything, you know, and I would try to stump him sometimes. And I think I only asked him two questions he couldn't answer in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so one of the things we kind of prided ourselves on was to kind of slide under the radar so that they didn't, so they, the other corporates that were there, didn't really understand what we were doing until we finished something and then we could present it. We weren't really trying to take them along um, and educate them on them. So in a way it was a, it was a, a, an opportunity, it was a possibility but was there an expectation? I don't think people really knew what to expect at that point in time. Um, so the expectations were perhaps very low. Um, they knew that they had to do something with people and understand people's behaviors and beliefs, etc. But they weren't quite sure why. And so they, they really didn't know what they were going to get. It seems as if today there are still many people out there who don't know what to expect from anthropology. So with that in mind, what do you do, you know, to help people see the value in anthropology? I, I think I try to demonstrate more um, through the way I do research, taking people along before COVID, taking people to the field, um, opening their eyes in that way to an ethnographic 
experience, um, very abbreviated in, in many cases, but, um, you know, the word immersion comes to mind. I know that, that many consulting firms do ethnographic immersions for their clients or for engineers or designers that they work with at, at particular companies. Um, I think the, the showing by doing, by bringing people along, having people sit in an interview with you, um, listen to people's stories, is still very powerful. Um, I, we just did it recently. We did a workshop and come back through, I think we did interviews with over 6,000 people total over like the past three years. Um, and we've come through all those results and then pulled out these video clips and showed them to engineers, designers, product managers. And they were just kind of blown away. So I think, you know, it's a very small thing, but when you realize that they don't have those kinds of conversations, they don't think in that way, it really kind of opens up a window that um, they didn't even know existed. You know, obviously you, you're in a position where you've got to experience rigor and, you know, with within the research capacity of business organizations, not just the sort of fly-by tactical. So, you know, with that in mind, what would you like to see from some early career, you know, people maybe coming in? Um, is there anything that you think that people should be thinking about ways to improve? The thing that comes to mind um, first, and other things may come to mind as I'm answering your question, is uh, I think people should have a really good grounding in research methods. Um, I know that, you know, they'll say, we need a qualitative researcher, we need a quantitative, we need mixed methods. But what are those methods? And, and are you skilled in those methods that you have enough understanding of how to deploy them in a research situation? So, and then also being able to ask and say, I don't know how to do this. Is that, what's the best way of doing this? Um, I see a, a lot of young people starting out where they didn't get a good grounding in methods as an undergraduate or even as a master's student, even as a PhD student. Um, that, you know, they're kind of, if you do anthropology and you do, let's say, a year's worth of field work, even so, you might not have that much methodological training before you go to the field. So you have to kind of make it up as you go along. Um, but once you get to industry, you you can't really make it up as you go along. You have to kind of know what you're doing. And so if you don't know what you're doing, you find yourself in a situation where you're expected to do these studies um, and you're kind of like, then you should reach out to somebody and ask. Um, I think it'll make it much better for that person that's that's less experienced. It It's a mentoring opportunity for someone else. Um, and there's all kinds of ways to do research. Um, it could be that I want to do all one-on-one -on -one <clears throat> ethnographic interviews, but maybe that's not the best way to do it. Maybe it's a diary study. Maybe it's using DSCOUT. Maybe it's <clears throat> doing a card sort. Maybe it's doing expert interviews instead of talking to people that might use your product. Maybe there's other people. So those are just some of the things that come to, come to mind. Um, but that's where I see the most kind of challenge for someone new coming into industry is, is not having 
a really good grounding in, in methods. Um, and I think what really helps in analyzing this kind of data, particularly in tech or something like that, that's kind of very focused on a particular feature or an app or something like that, is having the ability to look outside of your immediate situation that you're in. Let's say you work at Google. Um, what's going on outside of the company? What are the bigger forces of nature, so to speak, or of society that are impacting people? And how might that then impact what you're researching? I think I see too often people saying, oh, have any other studies been done here on this particular thing? But they haven't also said, have any other been studies, have there been other studies done outside of Google? Um, looking at secondary research and then trying to bring that in. So, and that helps immensely in the analysis of the data and it makes it more situated in time and space. So, you know, I'm going to ask a question and I'm not suggesting that you need to tell people exactly what to do, but would you have any tips for people who want to go, not just to Google, but to Intel, you know, or Google or, you know, a larger tech organization that, you know, some of these companies that people simply dream of? Sometimes people will ask me this directly, but they want there's a lot of uh, courses out there that will train you to be a UX researcher or something like take this course in UX something. Um, and they wonder if that will help them get their foot in the door when they apply. And I tell them very bluntly, usually no. Um, what really matters is, you know, it depends. It, a lot of times Google is looking for someone at the PhD level, but not always. It depends on where you're coming in. Um, but let's say you're a, a person that's going to get their PhD soon. Make sure that you have, that you can talk about your research in a way that's, you know, compelling and interesting and this and that, because that's what they're going to look at is like, at least for Google and Intel somewhat, is like, where is your ability to think on your feet? Are you a good researcher? And research meaning um, not UX research, but research in general. Do you have that solid grounding in anthropological theory or sociological theory or whatever topic area? You know, because there's sociologists, psychologists, anthropologists, political scientists that I've interviewed to come on board. And that's the one thing that really makes you stand out is how um, how well trained are you in in those kind of academic topics? And then can you take that knowledge that you have and turn it into a, an applied situation? Can you talk to people, an engineer, about your study that you did of people that are getting uh, heart transplants or something like that and the whole process of you know the doctors and this and that and, and the next thing. I made that up off the top of my head. But can you bring yourself um, and your discipline into Google, let's say, and be a competent researcher? And so those extra classes that you take might help, but I think at the larger corporations, they're looking for something um, much more solid and basic than, than certifications um, that go on. And then again, I would also say experience. If you can get uh, experience of any kind that is in industry, you know, if you can get an internship, et cetera, then that will help you immensely as well. 
Wonderful. Thanks. Appreciate you sharing everything there. Uh, is there anything, you know, any talks you have coming up or any organizations that you just want to maybe give a shout out to? We are doing um, John Sherry, who is at Intel um, and has been there for a long time, anthropologist, and Hussein Ilyahan from the University of Mississippi are putting together an applied uh, anthropology and industry session at the upcoming uh, Society for Applied Anthropology, which will be in lovely Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, but they are, they'll be announcing a call for papers soon. And I think it'll be a three session. Um, it'll be three sessions, one, two that will be very interactive and one that will be more papers being presented. Um, so we're looking for students to present there. Keep your eyes out on, on Epic. It's a great conference to, to go and learn about kind of anthropology in, in industry and practice. Um, the Society for Applied Anthropology, I'm a member of that. I highly recommend it. They're finally coming around to looking at, at industry a little bit more. Um, and the same for the AAA, um, which is also associated with, with Epic. So. Sounds great. And if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, where should they reach out? Probably LinkedIn. Kathy, thanks for sharing everything. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yes, it was a pleasure speaking to you, and I hope I did some good for someone out Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.